You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Father, we bow in the presence of you and of your word this morning, and our hearts cry as that you would illuminate your word to our hearts and our understanding. We are dependent upon you for the understanding of this revelation of yourself, and we ask this morning that as a result of our time spent here that you would encourage our hearts by giving us a renewed and refreshing vision of your providence, your grace, your majesty, your wisdom, and your goodness. We ask this today in Jesus' name. Amen. Our God is a God who delights in doing the impossible. Furthermore, I think our God is a God who delights in promising impossible things and then stacking all of the odds up against the accomplishment of that promise and then choosing the most frail, fallen, faulty, unlikely, overlooked candidate and using them to accomplish the impossible. And I could give you so many illustrations of this from Scripture. Just take Abraham, for instance. Abraham, in about a year's time, Sarah's going to be with child. Oh, yeah. 90-year-old man? Come on. That's impossible. It's at least improbable, if not impossible. Some people would argue that that's impossible, and even Sarah laughed. Am I going to have pleasure at my age? And Abraham's no spring chicken either. Really? And God did it, didn't He? A virgin will conceive and she will bring forth a son. Yeah, right. It's impossible. With men, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Our God delights in doing the impossible. And He delights in doing it in such a way that He is magnified and He is glorified and all of His character and all of His nature and all of His wisdom and His majesty are put on display in Him accomplishing the impossible. He did that with Abraham. He did that with the virgin birth. He did that with the Exodus and using Moses to bring His people out of Egypt. He did it all the way through the Old Testament. And friends, He still does it today. And He did it in the book of Acts with the Apostle Paul. What is it that God promised the Apostle Paul that from our perspective seems an impossibility? What is it that He promised him? Acts chapter 23, verse 11. Paul, just as you have witnessed to me at Jerusalem, so I am going to send you to Rome. Now from all human appearances, from all outward appearances, you and I would read that and we would laugh. Come on. Don't you know how how stacked against Paul the odds really are? He has in Jerusalem an entire sentiment of almost everybody in the city who is prejudiced against Him. They have heard that He is preaching to all men everywhere against their people and against the temple and against the law and that He had defiled the temple. And so there is this undercurrent of animosity against Him. And amongst all of the people in Jerusalem, there are the elders of the Jerusalem church and there are the seven men who came with Him from Macedonia and Achaia and Asia who had traveled to Jerusalem with Him. And between the elders and those seven men, friends, that's a pretty small cheering section, isn't it? That's not a lot of help. Everybody else is against Him. And among all of those who 
are prejudiced against him, there are a few who hate him enough to kill him. You see, the Apostle Paul's desire is to depart and be with Christ, and there are Jews in Jerusalem who want to make sure that that desire comes to fruition. And Paul, for all intents and purposes, is a walking dead man because the minute he gets outside of those barracks, within 20 minutes the Jews will have him dead. And they are plotting and they are planning and they are scheming against him. His enemies are many. They are vicious. They hate him with hatred. The Apostle Paul could really align himself and express the same sentiments that David did in Psalm 3, verses 1 and 2, when David said, O Lord, how my adversaries have increased. And many are rising up against me, and many are saying of my soul that there is no deliverance for him in God. Psalm 25, verse 19, Look upon my enemies, for they are many, and they hate me with a violent hatred. Psalm 38, 19, My enemies are vigorous and strong, and many are those who hate me wrongfully. That's where Paul was at. He is a lamb surrounded by wolves. He is a fish in a barrel. He is a walking dead man. And the odds, naturally speaking, of him ever getting outside of Jerusalem alive are little to none. But the Lord said to Paul, I'm sending you to Jerusalem. That's all Paul had to know. And friends, what begins in verse 12 of Acts chapter 23 is a series of events that take us through the end of chapter 23. All of chapter, the rest of chapter 23 begins with something that happens in verse 12. And it is the day after the Apostle Paul was promised by the Lord Jesus, take courage because I'm sending you to Jerusalem. And on the following morning, a conspiracy on his life is planned. It is hatched. It is designed And what we get to do is we get to read the rest of Acts chapter 23. And listen, there are no doctrinal statements. There are no, there are no teaching statements, no didactic statements in the chapter that open up for us some grand understanding of some doctrine of scripture. All it is is a, is a category of events. It's just a detailing of things that happen. It's just telling of a story. But listen, you could not ask for a better, more perfect illustration of the providence and the sovereignty of God than what you see in Acts chapter 23. You could not ask for a better illustration of how it is that God works all things after the counsel of His will to the good of His people and to His own glory than what we see happening in Acts chapter 23. So this week we're going to look at how the conspiracy to kill the Apostle Paul was designed, then how it was discovered, and then next time we're in the book of Acts together, we're going to see how that conspiracy to kill the Apostle Paul, was derailed. Today we're going to see how it was designed and how it was discovered. Acts chapter 23, beginning at verse 12. Follow along as we read. When it was day, the Jews formed a conspiracy and they bound themselves under oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. And there were more than 40 40 who formed this plot. On the day after the Lord Jesus appears to Paul at night in the barracks, and says to him, I'm sending you to Rome. The very next morning, a plot is designed, a conspiracy is designed and hatched to kill the Apostle Paul before he ever gets out of Jerusalem. And I want you to notice how serious they are about this conspiracy. What is it that they have vowed not to do until the Apostle Paul is dead? Eat or drink. That's serious. How many days can you go without eating or drinking? You can go more days without eating than you can without drinking. But within two or three days, you're going to be hurting if you haven't uh, had anything to drink. And so what they do is they vow that they're going to neither eat 
nor drink until the Apostle Paul is dead. Now, what does that tell you about their intentions? They were expecting this thing to come to fruition and to have him dead within 24 to 48 hours at the most. Because they, they're serious. They have vowed to not eat or drink until Paul is dead. They're serious about their intention. Furthermore, Luke says, they bound themselves under an oath. Interesting Greek word that Luke uses for the, for the phrase bound under an oath. Anathematizo, from which we get our word anathematized. It is a word that meant to curse or to damn. They cursed themselves or put themselves under a damning oath. Do you remember as you read through the Old Testament, sometimes you'll read like with Saul and with uh, David and Jonathan where they will say something like this, God do to me and more so if I do not do X, Y, and Z. You read that in the Old Testament. That's the type of oath that they have taken. May God do to us, may He curse us, May He damn us if we do not succeed in this plot, this scheme, to bring Paul's head to the ground in blood, to to kill him, to assassinate him. And we are going to neither eat nor drink until until we are successful. And they honestly think that God's blessing their efforts. They think that they're doing God's service in this. That's why they're expecting God's blessing upon this. They're expecting that God is going to bless them in their accomplishment of this task. Now, friends, why is it that they're doing this? There's two primary reasons. Number one, they can't trust the Romans to execute the Apostle Paul. They don't want to leave that to the Romans. Because so far, Lysias has shown himself very kind to the Apostle Paul, hasn't he? Rescued him from the mob outside the temple. Rescued him off the steps of the barracks. Rescued him from a scourging. Rescued him from the council of the Sanhedrin when they all went to uh, disarray when Paul made that statement. Lysias has shown himself kind and hospitable and gentle toward the Apostle Paul and has bestowed upon him all of the rights of a Roman citizen and is very kind toward Paul. And the Jews know we can't leave it to Lysias to execute this man. And furthermore, a second reason, we can't allow the Apostle Paul another public trial. Do you know why they don't want to give him another public trial? What happened at the last public trial? He swayed more than half of the jury. When he said, I'm a Pharisee and the son of a Pharisee, and I'm on trial today for the hope and the resurrection of the dead, and half of the trial, more than half, the Pharisees said, we find nothing wrong with this man. Perhaps an angel or a spirit has spoken to him. Last time the Apostle Paul spoke publicly, he swayed half the jury to his side. They don't want to take the chance that the next time Paul opens his mouth in public, he's going to sway more of his audience to his side. So they come to the conclusion there's only one thing we can do, and that is kill him. We have got to shut him up. We cannot give him another public trial. We cannot delay this. So we're going to neither eat nor drink until we bring his head down in blood. We're going to kill him. And so they make this vow. And there are 40 of them, 40 of them that make that vow. Now, in your Bibles, if you turn the page, you'll notice that there's a chapter 24 and a chapter 25 and a chapter 26 and a 27 and 28. Do you notice that? you know what that tells you? They weren't successful. Because there's more, this doesn't end at the end of chapter 23. There are more chapters, and so you know they weren't successful in their design. So now here's the question. Did they neither eat nor drink? After this, did 40 men die by not eating and drinking because they had not been successful in killing the Apostle Paul? The answer to the question is no, they didn't. Because you know they had an out. And you know what the out was? According to the Midrash, the, the Jewish commentator, uh, commentary on some parts of the Old Testament, they could have a vow annulled by a priest or a rabbi if they went to them and said, look, we made this vow and because of extenuating circumstances, we weren't allowed to keep this vow and so we need your annulment. And so the priest and the rabbi would just issue the annulment and said, I release you from your vows and they would be released. They could have their vows annulled. That's what they did. I guarantee you that's what they did. 
When the Apostle Paul left Jerusalem that night after Lysias swept him out of there, there's not a one of them that said, well, I made my vow. I'm just not going to eat or drink and die. They didn't do that. They just could go down to the priest and likely did, had their vows annulled, and so that was the end of it. But they are serious. They do want the Apostle Paul dead, and there are 40 men who have schemed to do this. And they have said, we are not going to eat and we are not going to drink until we kill the Apostle Paul. There are more than 40 who formed this plot. Now look at verse 14. What they need is a plan. Verse 14 is the plan. They came to the chief priests and the elders and said, we have bound ourselves under a solemn oath to taste nothing until we have killed Paul. Now therefore you and the council notify the commander to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case with a more thorough investigation. And we, for our part, are ready to slay him before he comes near the place. Now look at verse 14. They went to the council, to the chief priests and the elders, and said, this is our plan. Do you notice something that's missing from verse 14? The council, the Sanhedrin, was composed of how many groups of people? Three. The chief priests, the elders, and who else? The scribes. The scribes were mostly Pharisees. When they wanted to bring their plot their scheme, their conspiracy before the council, who did they bring it to? The chief priests and the elders who were mostly Sadducees. Now why did they leave the Pharisees out of this? What happened the previous day? I am a Pharisee and the son of a Pharisee, and I am on trial today for the hope of the resurrection of the dead. And all the Pharisees that were gathered to there after that moment realized We've got to rescue him. He's a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. And his doctrine is on trial. And his doctrine is the same as ours. So they said, we find nothing wrong with this man. And all of the Pharisees wanted to deliver the Apostle Paul. So the conspirators don't go to the Pharisees. They go to the chief priests. And they go to the elders who were largely Sadducees. Those are the ones who wanted the Apostle Paul dead. And they say, here's our plan. Now the fact that they could go to, listen to this. The fact that the conspirators could go to the chief priests and the elders, the highest ranking religious authorities of the entire nation, that they could go to them with confidence that the highest court in the land would take part in their conspiracy to assassinate a countryman speaks volumes of their corruption, doesn't it? If you wanted to kill your neighbor, would you go down to the courthouse and talk to one of the judges and say, look, I would like to kill my neighbor. And what I need is for you to do this, that, and the other thing to make this possible and cover it. Would you do that? Only if you knew that the judge was corrupt enough that he would take part in your conspiracy to assassinate your neighbor. They don't think anything of going to Ananias and saying, look, we want to kill him. We just need your help. And Ananias says, this is my opportunity. He got away from us last time. He was right in our grist, right there in the middle of the council until he made that statement about being on hope for the, on trial for the hope and the resurrection of the dead. And then he got out of our grasp. And so now they have this this group of 40 men who have committed themselves to kill him, and they say, we'll, we'll take part in that. We'll cover your tracks. We'll make sure that you never come to trial for it. We'll make sure that it's forgotten. We'll make sure that he gets killed and kicked in a ditch somewhere and that nobody knows who found it out. They are entirely and completely corrupt. They leave the Pharisees out of it and their corruption in their corruption, and then look at the bait that they give Lysias. What do they say to the council? Here's how this is going to go down. As a council, as Sadducees and Pharisees, you guys get together with the or Sadducees and chief priests. You guys get together with the Pharisees and you convince them. Don't let the Pharisees in on what we're doing. But you convince them to get Lysias to bring the Apostle Paul down here to the council again tomorrow so that you may what? Examine his case with a more or determine his case with a more thorough investigation. What does that mean? What are they going to tell Lysias? They're going to say to Lysias, Lysias, we want to get to the bottom of all of this. 
So bring him down here and we'll start asking him questions and we'll have a real courtroom scene and we'll get to the bottom of this whole riot. Now does that sound to you like bait that Lysias would jump on? Sure it does. Why? That's what Lysias has been trying to determine all along. In the crowd. Who are you and what have you done? And everybody gave him different answers. And up on the steps of the barracks, let him talk, figure out what this is about. And the mob goes nuts and they take him inside and they're going to scourge him to find out what all this is about. But they can't scourge him because he's a Roman citizen. So Lysias scratches his head and thinks, I'll take him down to the council. And he takes him down to the council and puts him in the middle. And one statement and everything goes to chaos. And Lysias still doesn't know what this is all about. And so they say, you want to get Lysias to bite. You tell him that you're bringing him down. You want him down to the council so that you can determine what all of this is about. And Lysias, if the Lord had not spoiled this plot, Lysias would have said, yeah, I'll take him down there. And they're going to get him to take the Apostle Paul, lightly guarded, down through those narrow streets of Jerusalem, down into the council, and at some point along there, they're going to ambush the Apostle Paul. Now friends, that says something about the fanaticism with which these men were committed to killing the Apostle Paul. Do you understand what they're planning on doing? They are planning on attacking well-armed, well-trained Roman soldiers, the elite fighting force, the best in the world. Now, the Apostle Paul is not going to be heavily armed, but he's certainly going to be armed. And these 40 men have to know that there are going to be casualties among them. They will eventually be able to take a few Roman guards, those 40 men. They will eventually be successful in killing Paul and probably the Roman guards, but they also know that there's likely going to be casualties amongst the 40 of us. And so they determine that they are willing to risk their lives to risk their necks, and some of them even die, if they can just kill Paul with such red in their eyes and blood in their veins, they want him dead. And they are willing to spend everything and be spent if they can kill him. That is just radical, fanatical commitment. That is the insanity of sin right there. That is the insanity of sin. When you're in sin and when you're rejecting truth and rejecting grace, you are literally insane. You cannot think right. You cannot ration right. You cannot think logically because sin just destroys your ability to even think any balanced thought. It makes you irrational. And these men are irrational. Now they've got a plot. They have a plan. They have the people and they have the passion to carry it out. There's just one thing that they have not thought through. There's one little weakness to their to their plan, one little weakness to their conspiracy. We've looked at how the conspiracy to kill Paul was designed. Now I want you to look at how it is discovered. Look at verse 16. But the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, and he came and entered the barracks and told Paul. You know what their weakness is? What's their weakness? The problem with their plan is that they have 40 people who know about it. 40 men. And not only 40 people who know about it, but all of the chief priests and all of the elders. And friends, you know what a secret is? A secret is something you tell one person at a time. And you tell one person at a time until it's no longer a secret. Eventually, so many people know about it, it's not a secret anymore. Well, they start out with 40 men. And they add to that all of the chief priests and all of the elders. And before long, you have maybe close to 70 men who know about this. And they're trying to bring this to pass within 24 hours. So there is all of this scheming and all of this planning going on. And 40 of them know about it. Somebody is going to be a blabbermouth. In fact, the Lord sees to it that somebody is going to be a blabbermouth. And what happens? 
Verse 16, one of the most tantalizing verses in all of the writings about the Apostle Paul. It says that Paul's, the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. Now that's tantalizing. You know why that's tantalizing? Because outside of that verse, we would never even know if the Apostle Paul had siblings, but he had a sister. Now I wonder, did he have two sisters? Did he have any brothers? We don't know that. We know he had a sister. And furthermore, the Apostle Paul's sister had a son. Did he have more than one nephew? Paul had a sister who had a son. That makes him Uncle Paul. You ever think of the Apostle Paul as an uncle? You chuckle because you you had the same gut response to that that I had. We think of him as this magnificent hero of the faith, author of half the New Testament books, this incredible thinker, this gifted genius, this talented man who spread Christianity from Jerusalem to Rome. But to some little boy, he was just Uncle Paul. He didn't know him as the great apostle. He was Unc. That's what I call some of my uncles. Unc. He was just Uncle Paul. Now I wonder, did Uncle Paul take this boy fishing in the Sea of Galilee? Did Uncle Paul go home for some of the family reunions? And if he did, was he a black sheep? He had a sister. Was his sister a believer? Did she? If she was a believer, did she become a believer before the Apostle Paul and become his enemy until he became a believer? And then when he became a believer, suddenly there could be reconciliation between them? If she wasn't a believer, did she become a believer when the Apostle Paul got saved so that he led his sister to the Lord? Or was she no longer a believer at all? And, and how did she respond to the news that he had been involved in the riot? You know how it is when one of your family members makes the front page of the Daily Bee? Or the, or the police blotter? I know how that is. And everybody's talking about such and such a bust and such and such went down and you say, well, that's my, that's my brother. That's my sister. That's my cousin. Right? How did she hear about the, the riot in the temple? And, and how did she respond to that? If she was a believer, wish she wasn't a believer. Maybe she was an unbeliever and she just had the sympathy and love and tolerance for her brother and, and passed that on to her son. Or maybe she was not a believer and she had no love and no sympathy and no tolerance for her brother whatsoever. And somebody said, hey, did you hear about the riot today in the temple? No, tell me about it. Well, man, they... They grabbed this guy out of the crowd and they drug him outside the temple and shut the doors and they started to beat him like a borrowed mule. And the, the Roman commander had to come down into the midst and rescue him out of that. And Man, I didn't hear about that. Yeah, he's arrested. He's charged with all these charges about preaching against the law and the temple and the people and defiling the temple. And, and the whole city's in confusion. Really, who was it? A guy named Saul of Tarsus, now the Apostle Paul. It's my brother. You hear all the scuttlebutt? And did she all of a sudden have her heart just broken and say, oh man, I just love my brother so much I hate to hear of him getting beat. Or did she say it serves him right, that dirty traitor? He turned his back on everything our family has believed for generations and he gets everything he deserves and I hope they kill him. How did she respond to that? It's tantalizing, isn't it? I wish I knew. I've put all these questions on the bottom of my list of things I'm going to ask Paul when I get to glory. <laughs> Tell me about I hope his nephew's there. Was his nephew a believer? Is that why his nephew came to rescue him? Because he was a believer and he heard about this plot? Is that why his nephew ran down into the jail to tell him? Or was his nephew so young? And my suspicion is that he was a young boy based upon how Lysias treats him because Lysias takes him by the hand and leads him aside privately. You don't do that to a 35-year-old man. He's a young boy. He takes him aside. Maybe he was just so young he didn't understand the theological issues. And so he didn't really decide whether he was for or against. He just knew that his dear old Uncle Paul was in danger and people were plotting to take his life. And so he rushes down there to save his uncle. 
Something else is tantalizing about this. How did the little boy find out about the ambush? Was somebody in his family involved in the plot? Did he hear about it over breakfast? Did he hear about it as he was going to sleep and listening to the conversation in the next room? Was it Paul's brother-in-law maybe who was one of the 40? Was Paul's sister involved with this? Somebody close, within earshot of that little boy, knew about the attempt on his uncle's life. And they were talking about it, and he heard about it. How did he hear about it? That's the next question I'm going to ask Paul when I get to glory. Or his nephew. Tell me about what happened. Tantalizing, isn't it? I wish I knew. But what I do know is that this little boy who was motivated likely for, by a love for his uncle, whether he was a believer or not, came down into the jail, which friends and family had access to prisoners in the jail system in those days because prisoners relied upon friends and family to bring them food and water and clothes and necessities. They didn't provide all of that for prisoners. Cable TV and exercise rooms and all of that stuff. They didn't have any of that. They relied upon friends and family to bring them their food. And so this little boy has access and the Apostle Paul sees him running into the barracks and he probably thinks to himself, ah, here's my nephew. He's bringing me cookies from my sister. And the nephew comes running up and he says, Paul, Uncle Paul, Uncle Paul, here's what's happening. The Jews are lying in wait and they have committed themselves under an oath that they're going to kill you. And here's the plot. And he just spills the beans to the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul takes the threat seriously and he calls one of the centurions and gives the boy to the centurion and says to the centurion, take him to Lysias. Take him to the commander. This boy has something to say to the commander. Notice that the boy and the Apostle don't say anything to the centurion. And the centurion takes the young nephew down to the commander, Claudius Lysias, and Claudius Lysias takes the boy aside and says, tell me what you have to tell me. And notice the impetuous, innocent, Spill the beans that the apostle, that the boys, that the boy, the nephew does. Verse 20. And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down tomorrow to the council as though they were going to inquire somewhat more thoroughly about him. Just a bare statement of facts. But look at, watch what he does. Almost without even understanding that he is addressing the highest Roman official in all of the land, in all of Jerusalem, he has this impetuous, boyish, sort of just bursting out and begging the commander, don't listen to them. More than 40 of them are lying in wait for him and have bound themselves under a curse not to eat or drink until they slay him. And now they're ready and waiting for the promise from you. He just spills it all out for him, Tells him the whole story. And now it's all in Lysias' hands. Listen, Lysias can say, <laughs> that's just 40 guys in a conspiracy. You think I wouldn't have heard about that? That's unbelievable. He could, he could turn around and he could walk away from that information or Lysias can act on it. But right now, friends, the fate of the Apostle Paul lies in Lysias' hands. It lies in his hands. He can either take it or he can leave it. And it says that he sent the young boy away telling him not to tell anybody about that he had notified the commander. Why is that? Because if the 40 find out that Lysias knows of the plot to take Paul's life, they're going to plot something else last minute or they are going to change their plans and catch him unawares. He wants them to think that they haven't been found out so that he can save or rescue the Apostle Paul from them again. So we have looked at how the plot on the Apostle Paul's life was designed and how it was discovered. And next time we're together, we're going to see how it is derailed. But here's what I want to draw out of this passage in the event so far. I want you to see two things, two things, one this week and one next time, about divine providence. 
Because the providence and the sovereignty of God is all over this passage. Now, you hear me talk a lot about the sovereignty of God. That I believe, and Scripture teaches, that God is sovereign over nature, over nations, over the decisions of men, over the decisions of king. He turns the heart of a king wherever he wants. He is sovereign in creation. He is sovereign in recreation, that is, in salvation or the new birth. He is sovereign over all of those things. And you may ask, well, how does that cash out? How does that flesh out? I'll tell you how it fleshes out. He works all things after the counsel of His own will by His providence. You know what providence is? Providence is the way that God sovereignly controls and orders natural things to accomplish His purpose and His ends. It is the way that God sovereignly controls and orders natural things so that they accomplish His purpose and His ends. So that in the end... His will is done. And His will is done. And His will is always done. Listen, without taking away human moral responsibility and choice. And without negating the causes or the means to the accomplishment of His end. So that in some mysterious way, God orchestrates and plans and uses everything that happens for the accomplishment of His goal the decisions that men make and the actions that men take all serve to accomplish His goal, His purpose, and His will. And His rule stands. His purposes stand. His will will be accomplished down to the last detail. And He does that through His providence by ordering everything natural and everything supernatural without taking away men's moral free choice, responsibility, and without taking away the means to the accomplishment of that end. And friends, that's exactly what you see in this passage. And that's exactly what you see other places in Scripture. Let me give you an illustration. A man, a father of a large family, gives his youngest son a coat. Does that sound like a life-changing, history-altering event to you? Just gives him a coat. Does it sound like the whole history of the world might hinge on that one event? Doesn't to us, does it at all? No. Until you realize that his 11 brothers were very jealous and wanted to kill him for that. And so when they saw an opportunity to kill him for that, they wanted to take that. But that kind of, if we kill him, he's not worth anything. We can sell him. That's a better plan. We can get money out of this. So they sell him to this caravan who happens to be passing by at that location, that spot. And they take him to Egypt. And he's sold into the house of a ruler in Egypt. And then he goes into prison. He stays there for a while. Eventually he's made king of over all of Egypt under only Pharaoh himself, and he delivers his whole family. And after all of his brothers realize what has happened and that he's not dead and that he is the king and ruler over all of Egypt, he says to them, don't worry, listen, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. Both his brothers and God intended the same thing. One of them intended it with evil intention and one of them intended it with good intention. And God intended it with a good intention so that they are responsible for what they've done They are culpable for their moral evil, and yet God sovereignly by His providence used their wicked choices and their designs and all of their schemes to accomplish what He wanted to accomplish in the end. And without that time in Egypt, there would have been no nation, there would have been no deliverer, there would have been no Moses, there would have been no law, there would have been no Redeemer. All from a coat. Who could have guessed that? It's just a coat. No, friends, it is the outworking of everything natural and everything supernatural to the accomplishment of His purposes. And in some mysterious, 
phenomenal way God works the evil choices of men, the wicked schemes of men to accomplish His grand design in the end. So that in the end He rules and He reigns and His purposes and His will are always accomplished. And men are always responsible. How about Judas? You realize without Judas there'd be no Good Friday, it'd be Bad Friday? You know why it'd be Bad Friday? Because even the wicked, immoral, wrong, abominable choice that Judas made was predicted by the prophets and promised by the prophets that he would betray the Son of Man with 30 pieces of silver. And his replacement as an apostle was predicted and promised by the apostle, uh, the prophets. And yet without his scheming and without his wicked desires and his hatred for the Son of Man, without all of that, you'd have no Good Friday. You'd have no crucifixion. But God predestined and predetermined to send His Son and to crucify His Son. Does that make Judas not culpable? No. Can Judas claim any part in having responsibility or glory for what happened on that Friday when the Son of Man was crucified? He can't, can he? He is wicked and he is culpable. But listen, friends, that was the predetermined plan by the foreknowledge of God. And he used the wicked intention and the wicked schemes of a Judas to accomplish his good and eternal purposes. That's providence. You say that's mysterious. That's right, it is. It is mysterious. Here's the Apostle Paul. Paul, I'm going to send you to Rome. How did he do that? Well, listen, friends, it just so happens that of those 40 men, one of them was within earshot of this boy when they were discussing this whole plan. And it just so happened that it was not just any boy in Jerusalem, but it happened to be the nephew of the man that they were scheming against. And it just so happened that he was listening to this conversation instead of being distracted and playing like normal young boys do. And it just so happened that because of what he heard, that he desired and decided to go into that prison and to warn his uncle. And it just so happened that the Apostle Paul decided not to sit on his laurels and do nothing, that he decided instead to send this boy with the centurion. And it just so happened that the centurion was favorable enough to take the boy with him to Lysias. And it just so happened that Lysias listened to what the boy said, and it just so happened that he took the boy seriously. Now what's wrong with everything I just described to you? This. Nothing just so happens. Nothing. None of that just so happened. All of that was the ordering and the structure of a sovereign, providential God who was using all of it. The 40 wicked men scheme and this little boy and everything that happened was unfolding according to the plan of God. You say, were they robots? No, not at all. All of them did what they did, completely free, completely what they wanted to do, completely what they decided to do, but who was orchestrating the whole thing? And what those 40 men intended for evil, God intended for good. And He was going to use that to fulfill His promise to the Apostle Paul, I'm sending you to Jerusalem. And guess what? The whole scheme that they hatched, the whole conspiracy that they planned, everything that they designed only served to do one thing. You know what it was? Get the Apostle Paul to Rome. (laughs) How does that work out? That's great! Couldn't have seen it coming. But you and I look at it and we say, what a marvelous God! Only He could think up something like that. You think God's pulling His hair out in heaven wondering what to do in the next step in your life, friends? He's not at all. Not at all. Nothing just so happens. Nothing. If anything just so happens, then that's the one thing you can't trust the Lord to control or direct or use. If it just so happens. Something else I want you to notice here, and I'm going to illustrate this in a couple ways and then we'll close. 
I want you to notice how the, the plan of God and the purpose of God, the end result, did not negate the human means. The plan of God and the purpose of God, the end result, what was ordained to happen, the promise, I'm sending you to Rome, did not negate, did not take away the human means or the responsibility of the agent. And here's what you see. You see the Lord standing by Paul and saying, Paul, I'm going to send you to Rome. And Paul wakes up the next morning and he hears about this plot of 40 men who are planning his assassination. And what does the Apostle Paul do? Sit back on his hands and say, well, the sovereign purpose of God is going to accomplish, be accomplished whether I do anything or not. So I'm just going to sit here quietly and let the Lord work all of this out. He doesn't do that, does he? What does he do? When he hears about it, he begins to take action and move to effect his own deliverance. He doesn't sit back and just say, God's going to work out his sovereign purpose so I don't have to do anything. Paul says, because God is working out his sovereign purpose, I'm going to get busy. Listen, I pray for safety at night when I go to sleep. We pray that with our kids. God, watch over us tonight. By your good hand and your graciousness, keep us safe tonight as we sleep. And then I go downstairs and I lock my doors. Why do I do that? Lack of faith? No, it's a lack of foolishness. That's what it is. I'm not a fool. I lock my doors because I believe that God is sovereignly going to answer that prayer by keeping somebody out because my doors are locked. I pray for safety as I drive. And then I put my seatbelt on and I make sure all my kids are buckled up and I stay in my lane. Why do I do that? You say it's a lack of faith. If you really believed God was going to keep you safe and answer your prayer, you drive in whatever lane you want. No, I believe that God accomplishes His end through the means that He has ordained. All my days are written in a book before there is yet one of them. Not only the content, but the number of them and the day of my death is as fixed as the setting and the rising of the sun and nothing can change it at all. But do I say, well, then I don't have to eat or drink because God knows the day I'm going to die and so I'm going to die on that day whether I eat or drink at all. So I'm just going to stop eating and drinking and let my health deteriorate. Do you do that? That's foolishness. Why? Because God has ordained the end and God has ordained the means to that end. Abraham. Go back to Abraham. In a year, Sarah is going to be with child. Now did Abraham sit back and say, then I don't have to do anything. You do that? Abraham knew I got to get busy in the next three to four months if I'm going to make that promise come to reality. And he did. And lo and behold, what do we find? It was Abraham and Sarah's activity that God used to bring about the end that He predestined to occur. They were responsible to do their part, and God did His part. Daniel. It's in there reading the book of Jeremiah, and he reads that in 70 years... The captivity in Babylon is going to come to an end. And then Daniel starts to do the math. You see, I was so old when I got to Babylon in the captivity, and I'm so old now that 70 years is coming to an end. And if the word of Jeremiah is going to come to pass, which it must come to pass, that means that the captivity is going to end real soon. So did Daniel sit back on his hands and say, well, the sovereign purpose of God is going to be accomplished, so I don't have to do anything to accomplish that. Did he do that? No. Daniel went to work praying and fasting and seeking God and confessing his sin and getting his people ready to go back to the land. Why? Because he believed that God was going to use the means that he had ordained to accomplish the end that he had ordained. And Daniel knew we got to get busy because the promise is going to be fulfilled and it's coming and we need to work to that end. And this happens in your theology all the time. God has predestined me to an inheritance and it is reserved in heaven for which I am kept by the power of God and it is kept for me. And there is nothing that can ever stand between me and my ultimate glorification in Christ. Nothing at all. But does that mean that I'm free to live like the devil? Not at all. I must persevere in the faith. 
And I must work out my own salvation with fear and trembling. And I must examine myself to see if I be in the faith and make sure that in the persevering that I get there. But it's God's work. But that doesn't mean that I neglect the means by which God accomplishes the predetermined end. God is going to present me faultless before His throne. He's going to make me holy. And He's going to complete that which He began in me from the day of to the day of Christ Jesus. He is going to sanctify and He's going to make me holy. Does that mean that I neglect the Word of God and neglect prayer and neglect fellowship and worship and service and all of those things? No, friends. Those are the means by which God accomplishes the end of our sanctification. Evangelism. Do we say because God has elected some to salvation that we're not responsible to go out and share Christ because all of the elect are going to come to faith anyway so there's nothing that we can do and there's nothing we should do? Not at all. What is the means by which the end is accomplished? It is the preaching of the Word and the work of the Holy Spirit and the and prayer and the persistence and evangelism and sharing the truth. And so we share the truth and we preach and we evangelize and we, we share the Word understanding that the end is secure. It is because God had promised to Paul, you're going to see Rome, that Paul said, all right, I'm going to start working to get me to Rome. It is because the end is secure. It is because the end is fixed. It is because God has predestined and predetermined some to salvation that we have the confidence to go out and share Christ with them. Because we know that God blesses the means and the end. He has ordained the means as well as the end. Why do we do what we do? I pray. I read Scripture. I preach. I minister the Word. I submit to the Word. I obey the Word. I fellowship with you. I worship with you. Because all of those things are the means by which God sanctifies us in Christ. And it's because I have the confidence that He will sanctify us that I know He will use the means of that sanctification, which is what we do. The Lord said to Paul, I'm going to send you to Rome. And the odds were completely stacked against him. Paul didn't sit back and say, well, sovereign purpose is going to be accomplished whether I do anything or not, so I don't have to do anything. He got busy. And he worked. And when he heard about the plot, he saw an opportunity to deliver himself. And he took advantage of that opportunity because the Apostle Paul knew that he who promised is faithful and he will perform. So he knew that God blesses not only the end, but also the means. Friends, that's what providence is. Providence does not negate our responsibility. Providence assures us that God will bless our part and our activity and our initiative and our work in bringing to end what, he, bringing to pass what He has said is the end result. Because He promised, He is faithful to perform. And next time we'll look at the other aspect of divine providence as we see how it is that Paul's murder plot was eventually derailed. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your majesty and Your wisdom and Your grace. We thank You that You are a God who is far above and beyond anything that we can comprehend or imagine. We thank You for the truth of Your Word. And we thank You that You are big enough and grand enough and glorious and majestic and wise enough that we cannot get our arms around You. We cannot possibly understand all of Your ways because like the Apostle Paul said, Your wisdom is unsearchable and Your ways are past finding out. They're not our ways. They're higher than our ways. And we don't see how all of these things come to pass, but we have utter and complete confidence that You are in the heavens, that You do what You please, and that no purpose of Yours can be thwarted and no counsel can stand against our God. We thank you for that confidence today in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting kootenaichurch.org. 
We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.